Welcome to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct the week's Pasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. I'm delighted that our first guest on this first ever Between the Lines podcast is Professor Mark Brettler. Mark is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Professor of Jewish Studies at Duke University. He's written extensively and is co-author of the Jewish Study Bible, which won the National Jewish Book Award in 2004. He's a co-author of the Bible and the Believer, How to Read the Jewish Bible Critically and Religiously. He's also actively involved in Jewish communal life and a co-founder and supervising editor of the tremendous thetorah.com, whose mission in making academic biblical scholarship accessible and engaging to readers from all backgrounds is an inspiration to us all. Mark, over to you. It's a pleasure and honor to inaugurate this series. And what better, better way to do this than to start with Parashat Bereshit, the Torah reading portion that starts the Torah, the very beginning of the book of Genesis. I will focus on the first three chapters. Within these three chapters, I'm going to concentrate on why I believe that they are comprised of two separate, complete stories. And thus, there are two different stories in these three chapters that have been combined or edited or redacted together. Or more than that, Though I will only touch on this, each chapter is part of a larger document or source that continues later in the Torah, and thus this method is called source criticism. Some of you may have been tempted to stop the second you heard the word criticism and to turn off this podcast, but I'm using criticism in its different old-fashioned meaning, namely to understand a particular type of work in its historical and broader context, in the same way that an art critic or a theater critic or a literary critic is interested not in criticizing the work that she or he is talking about, but rather explaining it in a broad fashion. So if you can, and especially if you're not in your car or jogging, please grab a Bible, either in Hebrew or in English. The translation I'll typically be using is the New Jewish Publication Society translation or any other language and follow along. Or better yet, please pause this podcast for a moment and carefully read Genesis chapters one, two, and three. As you read through these chapters, you should have felt that some stories were being told twice. Indeed, the creation of man and woman and some of the animals was narrated twice. But more than that, these episodes are not narrated in exactly the same way. In other words, they're not merely doublets, but as they're narrated a second time, you should have felt some bumps within the text. So for example, it is true that birds, man, woman, and land animals are created twice, once in Genesis chapter one and again in Genesis chapter two. But 
First of all, Genesis chapter two shows no awareness that these were created already. And quite significantly, the order in which they are created is different. So go back and take a look at Genesis chapter one, where first birds are created in day five, and then on day six, land animals are created. And then the second part of day six, after the land animals are created, man and woman are created seemingly at the same time. In contrast to that, look at Genesis chapter two carefully, where you will see there that man is created. Man, I'm using in the current sense as male is created in Genesis chapter two, verse 19. Then birds and land animals are created in Genesis 2, verse 19. And after they are created and not found to be a good match or mate for the male, only then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, is woman created. And thus, you not only have a doublet in terms of these various creatures being created twice, but the order in which they are created is different in chapter one and in chapter two. Furthermore, as you read through these three chapters, you should have felt that chapter one and chapters two and three have very, very different styles. The style of chapter one is very formal and it actually is very symmetrical, anchored by a number of repetitions. God said, Vayomer Elohim, and it was so, Vayihichin, and each of the six days of creation is separated by the same sort of notice, Vayhi Erev, Vayhi Voker, Yom X. There was morning, there was evening, such and such a day. And you have as a repetition, as a theme throughout this first chapter, Vayar Elohim Kitov, God saw that it was good culminating in day six after the creation of humans, that everything in creation is tov old. Very good. This notion of creation being good is totally absent in chapters two and three. There is no type of repetition of the sort that you have in chapter one, in chapters two and three. There's a certain type of symmetry in chapter one, where if you look at what is created in days one, two, and three, it is mirrored by what is created in days four, five, and six. For example, in day one, you have light. In day four, you have luminaries to skip ahead. In day three, you have land. In day six, you have the land animals, including people. None of that symmetry is present in the second chapter, which I would describe as discursive, or perhaps even more precisely as meandering in its particular style. And furthermore, and this you would really only see if you look at the Hebrew carefully, and many of the translations, including the Jewish Publication Society translation, obscure this particular fact. If you look at the second part of Genesis chapter two, verse four, it talks about biyom asot Adonai Elohim Eretz Vishamayim, literally and properly in the day in which the Lord God made earth and heavens. 
notes, according to that half a verse, creation is transpiring beyond in a single day, in contrast to what is described in chapter one of Genesis concerning six days of creation. This verse, chapter two, verse four, is so important. I would like to stick with it a little and to highlight three significant factors about it. The first one I already noted, that it deals with creation in a single day. The second one is that in contrast to what we've seen up to now, where the deity is called Elohim, typically translated into English by convention as God, in this verse, in chapter 2, verse 4b, the second part of verse 4, the deity is called Adonai Elohim, the Lord God. And there's perfect consistency here. In chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 4a, the name Elohim, God, is used, while in the following section, the name Adonai Elohim, Lord God, is consistently used. Furthermore, if you take a look at verse 4 carefully, you will see that the first half of verse 4 talks about the creation of Hashemayim Vehaaretz, heaven and earth, in that order. While the second part of the verse talks about Eretz Vehshemayim, it talks about earth and heaven, reversing these two elements. Putting this all together, it is very likely that the middle of chapter 2, verse 4, is the place where these two different stories have been spliced together. And 2-4-A is the end of the first story, and 2-4-B is the beginning of the second story. Unless you start to object, well, what about the chapter numbers? Don't they suggest that there should be a division between what we see in all of our Bibles as chapter 1 and chapter 2? I would note that those chapter numbers were first created or invented in the 13th century of the Common Era by Stephen Langton, who was Archbishop of Canterbury. They were first inserted into the Vulgate or used in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And later, quite quickly, they migrated from the Vulgate to the Hebrew text because it's awfully convenient to use chapter numbers. And if you'd like to object, how dare I break a story in the middle of a verse? I can deal with this perhaps in a further podcast, but there are many places where the verse numbers are not quite right, and a different episode does begin in the middle of a verse. So again, it should not be surprising that I could say that the first story is comprised of Genesis 1-1 through 2-4a, while the second story begins in 2-4b. Furthermore, if you look at 2-4a, it really does function in a number of different ways as a conclusion of the story. Thus, just to read it again, Ele toldot hashamayim vehaaretz behi baraam. You see, for example, in the JPS translation, such is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. Where this such is, Hebrew Ele is a perfect way of saying 
Now I have reached a point where I would like to summarize. And this is one of the ways in which the Hebrew word Elah, such is or these is used in biblical Hebrew. Furthermore, if you look at the words which are used in Genesis chapter 2, 4a, specifically, and I'll emphasize the words that I care about most, those three words, the heaven and earth when they were created, should certainly remind you of the first verse in Genesis, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz, in the beginning of God's creation of heaven and earth. Take a look or listen well. You'll see that the three words, heaven, earth, and create, are repeated in these two verses and in these two verses as well. This creates a type of bookmark between these sections, suggesting that what is begun in Genesis chapter 1-1 is concluded here in Genesis 2-4a. This is very typical in biblical narratives, where an end of a narrative is going to reflect back and use the terminology of the very beginning of a narrative. This is sometimes called an envelope structure, or in more technical terminology, an inclusio or an inclusion. Thus, this repetition suggests that what begins in 1-1 ends in 2-4-A. And thus, we have the first creation story, which we've just marked out. It is symmetrical, as I noted earlier. Its theme is creation by the word. Vayomer Elohim, God says, Vayichain, it is so. The word that it uses for creation is the Hebrew word bara, which is a word which does not exactly mean to create in the way in which we use it in English, because this Hebrew word bara is only used with God as its subject in the Hebrew Bible. And thus it means to create as only God can. And again, the deity who is creating here is called Elohim. And there's a whole lovely structure to this unit. You have two verses, which I would call pre-creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And this is not so much about creation in this story, but about reorganizing the chaos that is depicted as pre-existing in those two verses. Then you have the creation itself in six days, narrated beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And then you have three and a half verses of post-creation in Genesis chapter 2, from the beginning of the chapter through the beginning of verse 4. And in this story, the culmination of creation, or one of the culminations of creation, is the creation of Shabbat, the Sabbath, narrated last at the beginning of chapter two. And in this story, the people who may also compete with the Sabbath as the culmination of creation or a culmination of creation, people are here created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. All of these elements contrast strongly 
with the second creation story. In that story, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4b, the second part of verse 4, the style of narration is very different. We do not find the same sort of symmetries, and the style, the syntax is very meandering. There is no creation by word in the second story. Thus, take a look, for example, at verse 7 of chapter 2. Vayitzer Adonai Elohim et ha'adam, afar min The Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life. This is hardly imaginable in chapter 1, where God is so lofty and depicted so very differently. And indeed, the verb that is used in that verse, yatsar, is typical of potters. God is here depicted as a master potter, or more correctly, the Lord God is depicted as a master potter. And the word bara is never used in chapters two and three. The focus of the chapter is also very different. It focuses on the creation of people, and some other things are mentioned in an ancillary manner. Furthermore, it is focused on a particular geographical site, on Eden, which is totally absent in Genesis chapter 1. Note that there is a name given for this primal couple. By the end of chapter 3, they are named in Hebrew, Adam v'chava, and they are not named in the first chapter, in the first creation story. Furthermore, People in this particular story certainly have a special status as created by God, as reflected in chapter 2, verse 7, which I read a few moments ago. But they are not created, according to this story, B'Tselem Elohim, in the divine image. Well, since I just mentioned that the second story focuses more on the creation of humans, why don't I then say that chapters two and three represent a type of retelling of Genesis chapter one, where an author first gives a broad description of creation as a whole, and then returns to the creation of humans and offers that particular episode in greater detail? Well, I've already answered that question. There are too many differences between the two stories to be able to say that even though that is often the answer that is given in tradition. As I noted earlier, the order of creation is different. The number of days in which the world is created is different. The divine names that are used, these are different. And the styles are too different, at least for me and for most biblical scholars, to say that these three chapters are the work of a single author. Thus, what we have in the first three chapters of Genesis are two different stories with two different perspectives, two different sets of details that have been edited together. So, for example, and if I had more time, I could spend a lot more time on any of these elements. Their perspective on gender is different. In the first creation story you have in Genesis 1, verse 27, Zachar unekeva bara otam. Male and female, he, God, created him. 
and both male and female are created at the same time. Well, in the second story, and there's a lot to say about gender in the second story, it is not as bad as many people think, but nevertheless, chapter three, verse 17 says concerning the woman, the who yimshol bach, and he, the man, will rule over you. There is a clear hierarchy present in the second story, which is absent in the first story. Furthermore, the image of God is very different in the two stories. In the first story, God is depicted as royal, as very different from people, able to do things that people cannot at all do, such as creating by the word. And indeed, many scholars believe that the image that you have of God in chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, suggests this plural, let us, suggests that God is speaking to other heavenly beings, that God as king more or less has various ministers who help him in heaven. This is very clearly depicted in the first two chapters of Job, for example. And this further highlights the royal nature of God that seems to be assumed in Genesis chapter 1, even though God is never explicitly called Melech or king. In contrast, the God of chapter 3 is depicted as very human. He creates people as a potter would fashion a pot. And in Genesis 3 verse 8, the text narrates, they, the primal couple, heard the sounds of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of day. This is not a lofty heavenly God, but a very much earthly God who walks among people and, as the text continues, talks with them. And thus, these two stories are different in terms of their depiction, not only of gender, but of what God looks like. So to begin to conclude, to pick up on a term, on an issue that I raised earlier, this first story, which ends in 2.4a, is going to continue later in the book of Genesis, and is going to be part of a long document which is found in Genesis to Numbers and Breshit to Bemidbar, and at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy as well, a source which for a variety of reasons is typically called the priestly source, and it is going to continue in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which again have the phrase of the name of God, Elohim, God, rather than Adonai Elohim, Lord God, has the verb bara, to create as only God can, rather than what we find in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Yatsar. And take a look, for example, at Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. Zachar unikheva bara'am. Male and female, he created them that perfectly mirrors and continues Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And thus, by picking up certain clues like this and seeing doublets, contradictions, and points 
where vocabulary and story elements of a later chapter pick up on an earlier chapter. Scholars have been able to divide the Torah as a whole into a number of sources, namely relatively complete documents written by different people at different places and thus having different perspectives, different documents, which an editor or editors or redactor or redactors or compilers have fit together to create the Torah as we more or less. I'm a biblical scholar, not a theologian. And we don't have time, nor is this the place, to delve into the theological implications of this source-critical reading. Now, again, let me emphasize the fact that if I could have chosen the name for this particular method, I would not have used the word critical or criticism, because this is really a method which derives as part of a quest to understand the text better, to understand and to answer certain questions which are resolved, I believe, by this type of reading of the biblical text. I would just say that I'm an observant Jew, and I find that this method enhances rather than destroys my appreciation for the Torah. If you're curious, for various ways that I and others have squared religious commitment and this and other academic methods, please take a look at the website, thetorah.com. Please note it's the, T-H-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, not Torah. Torah.com is a quite different site. Or I discuss some of these issues in my book, How to Read the Jewish Bible. And I must admit in conclusion that when I was a much younger observant Jew and I first encountered this way of reading the Torah, I indeed found it to be troublesome. But its explanatory power was so great, I discovered that I could not ignore it. And it continues to be one of the methods that I use whenever I try to understand a Torah text very much. Mark, thank you so much for launching this podcast series. I have a couple of questions. Maybe you could share how your reading of the opening chapters of the Bible has changed with your deepening awareness of biblical scholarship. My understanding of these opening chapters is ever-changing. One of the difficult and wonderful things about biblical scholarship is that it is never undertaken in a vacuum. So yes, source criticism is one of the methods that is used for understanding the Bible, but it is not used, I believe it, it should not be used in isolation. So another method, and again, this could be a whole other podcast, would be that as I learned more and more about ancient Near Eastern texts, and I especially studied what is sometimes called the Mesopotamian creation epic, it's rather a bad name for a composition which is better known by its opening words, the Enuma Elish, when on high, which you could actually see copies of in the British Museum, uh, a very important early Mesopotamian text. Taking a look at that text helps me understand how Israel may have incorporated some elements from ancient myths surrounding it into at least its first creation account. 
and also helps me understand the Bible in its broader context and how it differs from other surrounding texts. So that's another way in which my understanding of the text has deepened over time. Let me just give you one final way in which it has changed over time. In addition, I often speak of biblical isms, where today I mostly introduced you to source criticism. There's what is called redaction criticism, how the redactor or editor compiler brought these various texts together, something maybe I'll have a chance to speak about in a moment. And another central ism is what is called text criticism which asks, what is the best or most original text of the Hebrew Bible? And this is based on uh, looking not only at the Hebrew text that is traditionally used in the Jewish community, namely the Masoretic text, but also looking at ancient variants. These include the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Bible, probably started in the third pre-Christian century, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Torah that is used by the Samaritan community, and a bunch of others. So here, let me give you an example of uh, text criticism and how my understanding of the Bible through text criticism has changed my appreciation and understanding of the Bible over time. Let me read Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, a line which may be familiar to some of you because it is recited as part of the Friday night Kiddush, the sanctification of the evening over wine, really beginning Shabbat. That verse reads in Hebrew, Vayachal Elohim bayom hashivii milachto asher asa, which if I translate it properly, should be, God had finished on the seventh day his work that he had made. Now you should actually be disturbed by that verse because God really finished his work on the sixth day, not on the seventh day. And in Hebrew, sixth would be shishi rather than shivi'i. You can hear that they both start with the same Hebrew letter, shin. And indeed, in this particular case, some ancient variants. So, for example, the Hebrew text of the Samaritans and the Greek text of the Septuagint here reads the equivalent of Hashishi. So, another method, text criticism, at least raises for me the possibility that an earlier and better reading of this particular verse is, Vayachal Elohim Bayom Hashishi. God had finished on the sixth day the work that he did. But rest assured, when I recite Kiddush on Friday nights, I use the traditional Hebrew text, Hashivii, the seventh day rather than the sixth. Mark, what do you think the redactors want to give future generations with the opening few chapters of the Bible codified as they are? It is really, really difficult to get into the head of redactors. I mean, it's hard enough to get into the head of 
individual biblical authors, such as the author of the first or the second creation story, I find it even harder to get into the head of a particular redactor. Let me talk about a few problems and a few different perspectives. There's a bit of a debate now in biblical scholarship, actually what we should call these folks. Should they best be called redactors or editors, which gives them a certain amount of intentionality. And when you think about what an editor does, an editor is trying to make a work better. An editor is trying to make a, a work smoother. Was this part of what these folks were doing? Or to use a term which some scholars are now using, were they simply compilers? Where what a compiler does is simply to mesh material together without creating more nuanced or more elegant editorial seams. So you should just know that this debate exists and is reflected even in the different terminology that I used in this particular lecture. And thus, what term you use might reflect what they are trying to do. But no matter whether they are redactors or editors or compilers, the important thing to realize is that they thought that it is important. And again, another debate, is there one redactor or many redactors? I'll assume for now, let's say that there are many. Were these redactors an important point to consider, perhaps the most important point to consider, is that a later redactor did not simply say, okay, I have these different versions in front of me. I am going to choose one version over another. But rather, the way this redactor or these redactors worked is to say, okay, I have a number of versions in front of me. I can't include all of them. And there is good evidence outside of the book of Genesis that there were other creation stories circulating in ancient Israel that were not included as part of the beginning of Genesis. There were many more than two creation stories. But the redactor here knew of these two creation stories. And rather than saying, I'm going to pick one rather than the other, said, it is important to include both of these stories. And in some cases, rather than duplicates, we have triplicates. It is important to incorporate three rather than two traditions on a single matter. And thus, this is something that we really need to think about and I think can serve as an important model, not only for the Jewish community, but really for the broader community, that when we are confronted with differences, we should not always rush to choose one over the other. But sometimes it can be very constructive to have a document or a civil discourse in which two different viewpoints, even if they are contradictory, live side by side. That is what I learned from the current form, the current redacted or edited or compiled form of Genesis chapters one, two, and three, and the larger redacted form of the Torah as a whole. Mark, thank you so much for that tour de force and for getting us off to such a great start. Do check out Mark's book, How to Read the Jewish Bible. And of course, the great website that he's co-founded, thetorah.com. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple 
Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.